Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Today I have Caitlin Smith. Caitlin Smith is an attorney working in New Mexico. And uh, I, I basically reached out to her because I wanted to have a conversation about the law, about the Constitution, um, kind of pick her brain, so to speak, about uh, legal matters. Uh, just because, you know, everything that went on ever since the election um, I, I got got me thinking about the law, and uh, she primarily does criminal defense in New Mexico, and so a lot of our conversation will kind of circle back to that, uh, which is fine. Um, I I actually I wish I had prepared more for that aspect of it, but I didn't because I've I've been really obsessed with the Constitution as of late, uh, and so. What we agreed on is down the road, we're going to do more episodes. And um, I'm hoping to um, kind of build onto this one by getting a constitutional lawyer on this podcast. Uh, but Caitlin will also come back down the road because uh, she wants to do another episode with me on kooky legal theories of the Internet, which I think is a wonderful idea for an episode. So you you can uh, count on that going down at some point this year. Uh, anyway, here is my discussion with Caitlin, and I'll see you on the other side. How have you been holding up during election season? Oh, I was a wreck. Um, starting on about the day after election day, I was fine. I, um, I, I tried not to follow everything after election day. Or after the seventh, when they announced Biden won, and I just couldn't because it was just like, oh my god, what next? And then, like, literally ten minutes later, something else, and then ten minutes after that, something else. I have followed uh, the subsequent developments almost entirely through Twitter, where I have found the few like brave souls in the legal community who just pick through every filing and are like, oh, my God, this is so stupid. They're giving themselves like a collective <laughs> ulcer doing this, but they're great and they're very funny. So um, so that that's sort of how I've absorbed it. And then I can just if I don't have the time, then I just miss what they've put on Twitter and I don't like I don't bother with it. Do you feel like people who aren't as in tune with like the reality of law and how law works are more stressed out about it than lawyers? Probably yes. Are we recording now? I have no idea. Uh, I mean, yeah, but uh, we, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I, I mean, I think what I see on Twitter, and obviously Twitter's not the real world, but um, or not reflective of most people in the real world. But what I see on Twitter is that there are a lot of people who are just in a panic over any given thing because um, Trump will say some dumb shit thing or some Republican talking head will say some dumb shit thing. And then there will be a kind of a surge of Trump supporters being like, oh, this is great. This is all happening. And then there will be a lot of like people who, who do not want Trump to, to have a coup saying, Oh my goodness! Is this is this the coup? Is this the way this could happen? And these same couple of lawyers who I follow keep saying no, it n none of this is going to work. But like it doesn't work like that. Stop. Calm down. Uh, but I think there is a lot of misinformation, and it's really hard to separate what is good information from what's bad information, which is true with a lot of legal stuff on the internet. Um, so I, I feel sorry for people. 
Um, so, um, yeah, I kind of just like get started because I, this medium, the reason I love this medium is because I could just start having a conversation. Yeah. Uh, it's not really like an interview interview, but um, I wanted to have a conversation about the Constitution, about law, about interpretation, because that's a big component to all of this. And um, Jan was like, Caitlin. So <laughs> uh, I'm excited to be doing this. Uh, and um, can we can you give us some background about yourself? So I'm a lawyer. I graduated from law school in 2012. Um, and I the first thing I did as a lawyer is I was a clerk for a state Supreme Court justice out here in New Mexico. And after that, I spent a couple of years working for a nonprofit that did policy work, mostly kind of state level um, hunger and poverty policy issues. Uh, and then since, let me get this right, since 2017, uh, I've been a public defender. First, I did misdemeanor defense uh, for about a year. So I did trials and pretrial hearings and all that stuff. And then for the past couple of years, I've done um, appellate public defense work. So most of my clients have already been convicted and I'm handling their appeals after trial. I have a few clients who have not been convicted and I'm doing their appeals in the sort of before trial. Like they won an issue before. It works different ways in different states, but in New Mexico, if you win an issue before your trial, the state is allowed to take up an, an appeal to the appellate courts before you go to trial. So I have a few of those. That is that hard work? Is that disenchanting work is my work disenchanting i love my work yeah. uh, i love i'm so happy as a criminal defense attorney people say how do you sleep at night i sleep extremely well i'm not saying because you because of the criminal aspect i just like i feel like the the deck is stacked against the deck is very much stacked against uh criminal defendants we do um i mean sort of formally it's stacked in favor of criminal defendants but the reality is it, it's very hard to it we, we lose more cases than we win. Uh, but they, I don't know. I, I love the work. Um, we, we joke that our patron saint is St. Jude, the, the patron saint of lost causes. Uh, but I, I find the work really interesting. It's really intellectually stimulating. And, um, and actually, we win a lot. The New Mexico courts are not that unfriendly to defendants' rights. And um, the there are a lot of mistakes at the trial level. There are a lot of cases where I look at them and I go, why did the prosecutor do this? This is a totally winnable case. Why did they put on improper evidence in this case? And I can actually get something that, that really is a win out of a case that, um, out of a case where there is very clear evidence of my client's guilt, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I, it's interesting that the St. Jude is the patron saint of, what did you say it was? Of lost causes. Of lost causes. Because wouldn't that imply that everything that hospital is doing with children is a lost cause? I, you know, I wonder if that, <laughs> I wonder about that. Is that the, I always assumed it was just that they, you know, like different churches have different names and it got associated in that way. But that's, that's an interesting thought that the, it's, it's the desperate, the yeah. desperate charity. I, I don't know. I really don't. Can we talk about? I, I, I'm still getting the hang of how to um, 
take conversations. Um, yeah. But I like, I'd like to start off kind of with this idea of interpretation. And the way I've always seen it is legalese is a kind of a foreign language and it needs to be interpreted. But then also there's a way I see it where why aren't laws written so obviously that interpretation is wouldn't be necessary? And so would you be able to talk about that for a little bit before sure. we kind of, and then we can kind of segue to, because I think it'll all end up coming together and we'll end up talking about the Supreme Court in the end. Sure. Uh, and we don't need to, you know, most of my practice does not involve the U.S. Supreme Court. The, uh, um, I, I'm not admitted to the U.S. Supreme Court bar. I practice in the state Supreme Court, but I, so far I have not had an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and I hope not to actually, because they are not friendly to, to my clients these days. Uh, so in so here's the thing about interpretation. Every, I, we actually had to talk about this in a case that a friend of mine had recently. Uh, there's no such thing as no interpretation. Everything every statement requires some level of interpretation, and the question is sort of how much. So there's an example that they give in. I'm definitely pulling this from law school. I'm sure I think this is from a law school class. Let's say you have a rule in the park where there are pathways and they say no vehicles on the, uh, no, no vehicles on the pathway in the park. Uh, you know, there's a $25 fine. Okay. So do you get, t take a moment, get a, get a picture in your head of what that rule means. You know, can I, am I allowed to drive a car on the pathway in the park? Say the, say the rule again in the precise language. No vehicles are permitted on the path in the park. So, no. Right. Correct. Not a trick yeah. question. Um, can I ride a bicycle? Is it a vehicle? I don't know, right? That's where the interpretation comes in, that there's some, I, it, it's not obvious. I it, the, the rule is a simple sentence that people can understand. No vehicles permitted on the path, but it requires some level of interpretation to say, what is a vehicle? And that's why you would have then, if that were really a statute, you would probably have a definition section that says a vehicle includes, you know, motorized conveyances, but not, you know, unmotorized sporting equipment or something. You know, you would have something that either said, yes, bicycles are allowed or no bicycles are not allowed. Here's another question. I'm running on that path and I trip and break my ankle and somebody calls an ambulance. If the ambulance drives onto the path, are they, do they get a ticket? I don't think they would because there's usually allowances for EMS. Well, but I didn't say there was an allowance for EMS, right? So, uh, so what you're doing is you're reading totally reasonably your real life experience into the, the simple rule that I came up with. So when you say, well, there are usually allowances for EMS, I agree with you. I think the city council or whoever wrote that rule was probably not thinking we want to ticket ambulances. They probably are fine with the ambulance coming in, but it doesn't say that anywhere in the text of the rule. And an ambulance is definitely a vehicle. So all of a sudden we've actually moved beyond the language and we're into something like a question of legislative intent 
And what were they actually trying to do when they set up this rule? So that's what I mean when I say everything requires some degree of interpretation. There's nothing opaque in the the rule that I set up. There are no magic words. There's no legalese. But there's still a question about what vehicle means. And there's still a question about the circumstances in which you would actually want to apply that rule versus the circumstances where it would be counterproductive. So all language requires some degree of interpretation. So that's what, and honestly, that's what most of my job is, not all of my job, but a lot of my job is looking at rules and saying, well, I think it really means one thing and not another. And don't you agree with me, Court? So when you have a a lawyer on the Supreme Court that is known for interpreting the Constitution based on the, I guess they call it originalism, how the framers mm-hmm. intended, that that goes to sort of what was in mind when the law was written and less how it can be applied now? So there are, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a whole, there's a whole line of argument that, um, which I tend to believe that you should interpret a constitution differently than a statute because statutes, a, a statute meaning just a law that, Congress or a state legislature or a city council passed. A statute is just a a written down law. A statute can be changed. It can be tweaked. You can have lists of specifics and exceptions, and they're often very, very, very long. A constitution is supposed to be short and sort of conceptual. And so there there is an idea in, in law that you can interpret a constitution with more flexibility than a statute. Um, so maybe with, so so for example, in, in the U.S. Constitution, the federal constitution, there's a prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. You would not want to have that in a statute. That's a terribly written statute. You can't have cruel and unusual punishment. What does that even mean? But it doesn't seem bad to have that as a guiding principle for, for running the whole country to say you you cannot have something that is cruel and unusual without going through and saying, well, this is cruel and this is unusual. But going back to your question, there is a a lot of argument then about what meaning to give that language. It's pretty clear that the people who wrote the phrase cruel and unusual punishment did not think the death penalty was cruel and unusual punishment. Um, Thinking historically, they they probably meant something like drawing and quartering is cruel and unusual punishment, uh, which it is. I agree. Uh, but there's been a push recently to say, uh, and by recently, I mean in the last 80 years, um, to say that um, any kind of capital punishment is cruel and unusual punishment. And more recently to say that uh, that life without parole for juveniles is cruel and unusual punishment. Um, So there is this split, and I'm not summarizing this well. There is is a debate. Okay, let me me semi-start over. There is a debate in law between whether 
you follow the meaning of the words that are written down or whether you look for the intent behind them or whether you think about as sort of a combination, the meaning of the words when they were written down. Um, There are a lot of different ways to think about this that all on some level uh, are questions about what what the words mean or what they should mean. Um, Some people do this differently for statutes than for constitutions. Um, And so there's a split, which I am not the person to explain well, um, between the concept of originalism and the concept of textualism. Very, very broadly, originalism has to do with an interpretation of the constitution that looks at the original intent of the people who wrote it which is also complicated because different parts of the constitution were written at different times. And, um, and textualism tends to be, tends to be more about uh, statutes and saying you, you, you follow the words that are written down no more, no less. If there's not an exception for ambulances, then you don't make an exception for ambulances. But a, a different, somebody who actually studies that stuff could give you a much better explanation than what I just gave. Eventually, I'll build on this. This is just the starting point. Um, do you ever watch um, television? Yeah. You ever watch a drama, a drama show called Better Call Saul? I love Better Call Saul. I look. I was a defense <laughs> attorney in Albuquerque. How could I not love Better Call Saul? All right, so the first... You know, it's filmed on location. So everybody yeah. in New Mexico like knows people who have been in the show or has been on the show. And I know all the, the places where it was filmed. It's, it's yes. Sorry. Yes, I have a lot of respect for that series and the one that came before it. Um, but the opening scene in the pilot is him practicing his spiel to the judge in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Do you do that? Do I do that? So right <laughs> now I don't do... Um, Right now, I do very little uh, in-person argument. Um, Almost all of my work as an appellate attorney is in writing. But when I did trials, uh, I occasionally did arguments in the bathroom, not in the courthouse, because there will be someone else in the bathroom and it will be embarrassing when that person walks out, (laughs) or it'll be a juror and you'll cause a mistrial. Uh, But I, um, I had a long commute, so I would practice my opening at, uh, more my opening, less my closing. Uh, I would practice my opening in the car uh, on my way to uh, to court. I had like an hour and I would just not listen to podcasts that day. And I would say everything out loud in the car. I, by the way, that opening where he does the really, the really stirring, I, it's not an opening, it's a, it's a closing argument, where he does the really stirring argument in favor of the guys who um, abused a corpse. Uh, <laughs> I have rarely laughed harder at a scene on television. It rang so true to my experience. And it's also a good lesson, actually, that that your argument as a lawyer needs to match the facts of the case. If you get too far afield from what actually happened in your case, the jury is not going to buy it. Yeah, well, you know what was why I think it was funny is you didn't know what they did that he was arguing for until the very end of the scene. You're like, oh, that guy's full of shit. Except, except you could feel it coming. I was sitting here going, "This is a great principle. What did those kids do? What did they do?" Oh, I had this article: the oddest clauses of the Constitution. Um, oh yeah, there's a book about that, isn't there? There's something, a book called "The Odd Clauses" or something, or the. Um, 
I don't know. Oh, I also pulled up some regulation stuff. I don't know if you're interested in regulation. Oh, I love regulation. Yeah. So there's this organization called Profit and Laws based out of Chicago. And they basically um, mentor or or school wannabe entrepreneurs. So like they've got this big article on their website called Hidden Laws and Confusing Regulations. And they're talking about sort of how there's no one place for anybody to get information. And they basically say either it's in a book bigger than you're willing to read or it's in the head of a lawyer who, I guess, would be too expensive for most startups to retain. Uh, And so what are your thoughts on sort of, and I kind of actually dealt with this as um, a startup some years back where like we didn't know what the rules were and we couldn't afford to retain somebody to tell us what the rules were for certain things. And should, should there be a way to access this information without having to retain someone? Yes. And it's a really big problem. Um, I I just want to say for your listeners, what regulations are in case, because I, I think I had to go to law school before I really understood this. Um, Go ahead. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, just for the record, I'm actually generally pro-regulation. What I'm not a fan of is not being able to access what those regulations are. So I actually believe in regulating the financial sector and in certain areas, uh, building. <laughs> so, But um, my the reason I'm interested in this subject is because I'm in New York City. And you know, being from New York, that Lawyers here are really inaccessible to people who don't have startup capital. It's Yeah. I, no, I agree with you. I don't think regulations are inherently bad. I think they can be really helpful. Uh, I think the issues are transparency and accessibility. So, and, and frankly, length. Uh, so the idea of a regulation is that it is a rule made by the executive branch that has the force of law. So you have, or I, is it always the executive branch? It is almost always the executive branch. Let's just say executive branch. Um, so the idea is the legislature writes a law that says, which is more specific than a constitution, right? That's, um, that says something like, I don't know, roads should be wide enough to have, um, all roads should be wide enough that two cars can pass each other. I don't know. That's pretty specific even for a law. But let's say that's a law. There's some big scandal about roads not being wide enough. It's a weird law. Uh, I made it up. Then the the regulatory agency, which is usually an agency under the executive, so the president or the, uh, the governor or the mayor, um, has to fill in what that actually means. You know, how wide do, does it have to be for two cars to pass each other? And they'll measure that and they'll put in a regulation that has the force of law about what that means. Or in the area I used to work in, which is um, childhood nutri- nutrition programs. If you have a, a law that says school meals shall be nutritious, you have to have an agency come in and say, well, that means you have to have so many servings of whole grains and so many servings of vegetables and no, not more than this amount of sugar. So as you have pointed out, this means that there are a lot of rules to fill in the blanks. Uh, 
And it can be really hard to figure out what they mean. So part of my job when I used to work for this nonprofit was just to go to people who I thought could benefit from these programs, go to like schools that could be running more programs than they were running and explain to them what the hell the programs actually were, what they were required to do and what they weren't required to do. And sometimes I had to actually go to a government agency and say, you're telling people they have to do this thing that is not in any way required, that's not in the regulations. Uh, so I, I think that's a huge problem that things become so opaque and so hard to figure out that individual citizens really don't know where to start. Um, and even if they didn't know where to start, going through all of the regulations and keeping track of them is a full-time job. And sometimes the government agency is getting it wrong and saying, you have to be certified to do this thing that's tangentially related to what you want to do. Like, what if they told you you needed a food handler's license to open your building, and, uh, sorry, to open your business? And you said, I'm not going to handle food. And they said, well, but businesses sometimes have to handle food. And so we want you to have a food handler's license. It, that's crazy, but that's not that far afield from what sometimes happens. People say, oh, well, it's better to be safe than sorry. And there are cases in which that's right. And there are cases in which they're prioritizing something silly over uh, having having rules that people can actually comply with. There's actually, there's an interesting guy who talked to one of my law school classes whose politics I do not agree with because this sort of leads him to a very conservative place. And I am not conservative, but his point is a good one and a deep one, which is when you have so many regulations, it is impossible to comply with all of them. Like you are definitely by existing in the world, violating some regulation or statute. And that introduces um, the possibility and almost the certainty of unfair enforcement. Whereas because everybody is in violation at all times, you can always get in trouble with the government. And it's a question of whether they choose to target you or somebody else, which is like a great scary point. And it comes up in my line of work in traffic enforcement, where you are always breaking a traffic law or you yeah. will certainly break a traffic law at some point while you were driving, uh, which isn't to say we shouldn't have traffic laws, but at some point you will touch the line or speed by one mile per hour or your registration will be out of date or something won't be visible and police will have an excuse to pull you over. You know, that's a, that's a great quote, which I might use as the title for this, that by simply existing, you're breaking some kind of law. Oh, you definitely are. <laughs> Um, and I've actually thought of that while, you know, I got my license only a few years ago in my mid thirties, uh, cause I never really needed it until we moved to Staten Island. And I, I bend over backwards to drive correctly. And mm -hmm. I almost always end up getting something in the mail a few months later, like every few months, something to tell me, oh, you kind of were speeding here or you changed lanes wrong or you ran through this light i'm like it was yellow but or at least i thought it was yellow and it's just like it seems no matter what i do as a driver if i'm not ticking off the drivers around me then the state is watching or the city is watching or whoever monitors it in new york city i'm not sure but it's super weird like you can't win no, on some level you can't. And the scary thing, um, 
There's a famous US Supreme Court case called Wren, uh, where it basically the challenge was um, that police shouldn't be allowed to, to pull people over on a pretext. Police shouldn't be able to say, oh, well, you were speeding by a couple miles per hour, so I'm going to pull you over because I think you might be connected to something else. I think you might be connected to a drug case, and I want to talk to you or I want to search your car. Um, and the U.S. Supreme Court said it's fine as long as you're breaking the law, or rather a majority of the court said it. As long as you're breaking the law, the police are allowed to stop you. doesn't matter what's motivating them. So it's, it is, in much of the country, totally legal for the police to stop you on a pretext, as long as the pretext is valid. And as we've just said, you are almost always going to have, give, be giving the police some reason to pull you over. There is almost always some traffic law you are breaking. What's the most asinine reason you've heard of in that in your profession of a police? I mean, obviously, we know there's obvious racism, uh, especially around these parts. But like, What's what's one of the most asinine reasons that you've heard of of a that's actually been kept up in court? So this one, um, well, this survived the trial court, so I would say this was upheld. The, the appeal got um, dismissed for different reasons. The um, I had a client who got pulled over because of windshield tint, by which I don't mean that his windshield was too dark, which police do sometimes pull people over for. I mean, if you look at your car's windshield, there's a strip of tint at the top. Um, and there's a, like a little line that's about, it's a couple of centimeters long on the very edge of the windshield that, uh, that shows how low the upper windshield tint can go down. It's something like four or five inches. Um, and the officer said that my client's upper windshield tint extended down too far by an inch or two. I was skeptical that the officer could have been able to tell that from any distance, even if it was in fact true. I don't know if it was, uh, but that was his stated reason for pulling over my client is that the upper windshield tint extended down too far. I wonder how many times he's used that. I don't know. It's a little embarrassing. Some of the other reasons that have to do with like your car, your physical car, actually kind of make sense for safety reasons. Like if you have a big crack in your windshield or if there's a tail light out or something, at least there's sort of a plausible reason to pull somebody over and say, hey, your tail light's out. Did you know that? Uh, but the the upper windshield tint seemed like a stretch. What's the highest court you've ever had to appeal to? Uh, the New Mexico State Supreme Court. Uh, I have not ever tried to appeal. I, I have never filed a cert petition in the U.S. Supreme Court. I know that you you don't want to go to this version of the Supreme Court anytime soon, but, but what I am interested in the last three judges that were appointed to the Supreme Court. Okay, so that would be uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Before her was uh, Brent Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, mm -hmm. and before that was Neil Gorsuch. So the the three Trump appointees. Yeah, the three Trump appointees, and it was a big deal to have Republicans appoint them. Why is it okay to have justices who are clearly chosen by one faction of the government because of you know? 
I just I thought that law, that judges are supposed to kind of be centered, but it's clearly not the case because otherwise it wouldn't be such a big deal to have as many appointees in four years as they've managed to get. Uh, so the first thing I want to say is I'm very much not okay with uh, with the the current state of appointments. Um, I think it is really hard to come up with a definition of what it means to be an apolitical judge, right? Because people have differences of opinion and some of those differences of opinion are totally valid. And uh, a lot of the relatively valid differences of opinion have gotten polarized that people want, the Democrats want a judge who believes a certain thing and Republicans want one who believes a different thing. Oh, an area in which this is less polarized is criminal justice. Uh, I've had more than one colleague comment to me that Merrick Garland probably would have been stricter on defendants' rights than uh, Neil Gorsuch will ultimately turn out to be. Um, most, mostly just people don't like defendants. Uh, but, but if you look back, actually, the, the, that's a serious point. If you look back at the major criminal justice cases, Scalia was not that bad for defendants on some things. Um, it was actually great for defendants on some things who's bad on other things. Um, but you would get weirder splits in uh, in criminal justice than you would get in other um, kind of interesting areas of the law. The, the five four splits in criminal justice are not the same as the five four splits everywhere else, necessarily. The problem that a lot of liberal lawyers have is not that that judges are conservative, because obviously some judges are going to be conservative and, and some are not. Um, there are real issues with the manipulation of the process. And then in terms of just why does it matter which faction, which party appoints judges, um, the Republican judicial apparatus has been really taken over by the Federalist Society, which has worked really hard to kind of enforce I, I, what's the way to put this? To enforce an orthodoxy for conservative judges so that you know when you appoint a conservative justice that what you see is what you get, that you're going to get a judge who is going to rule the way they want on a variety of issues. Caveats to that for your listeners before somebody gets mad at you and then, or, or at me, and then by extension you. Uh, there are thousands and thousands of lawyers who belong to the Federalist Society or who have appeared at Federalist Society events. Um, there are tons of law students who belong to the Federalist Society. I went to a million Federalist Society events in law school because they always have great food because they're um, they're very well funded. So that, like the Federalist Society always had barbecue when I was in law school. Can you explain um, what the Federalist is? what the Federalist um, Society is. Um, so I'm not familiar with it. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, okay. So this yeah. is, this is a great, this is a great moment. So, um, and this is one of those things that you should definitely look up after we're done because I am going to not get the full story. So the Federalist Society is very broadly speaking, an organization for conservative judges, lawyers, and law students. Um, and that, can be benign, right? That can be just people get together, people socialize, people have conferences to talk about interesting issues in the law. Um, and I think that's how they want to be seen. Uh, I, when I was in law school, there are tons of clubs when you're in law school, right? There's the um, 
you know, there's the uh, Black Law Students Association, there's uh, the Federalist Society, there's the, the Organization of People Interested in Criminal Law. So there are different kind of philosophical and uh, demographic and interest-based affinity groups. And they sponsor lecture series and they have meetings and they have parties and they do, do all sorts of things. So when you're in law school, the Federalist Society is mostly a group that brings in kind of interesting conservative speakers or not interesting conservative speakers um, that you can go see during lunch. And it, so when I was joking about them having uh, better food, it's true because the Federalist Society had um, outside funding because there's a big national organization. What has happened on a broad scale is the Federalist Society has become a mechanism for suggesting judicial nominations to the president and to Congress. And so now, I don't know the percentage, but but a lot, maybe all, but but certainly a lot of Republican judicial nominees, Republican federal judicial nominees, are members of the Federalist Society. And everybody who um, has been appointed to the Supreme Court by a Republican president recently, so those three people, um, I think they came off of a list that was personally either written or vetted by the founder of the Federalist Society, whose name is Leonard Leo. Um, that's, am, am I just getting all this wrong? Let me Google Leonard Leo and make sure that I get that right. The, um, I've been Googling yep. this whole time. That's who he is. Um, I think he wrote, so so kind of famously during the, the 2016 presidential campaign, Donald Trump broke with tradition and made a list um, that he published uh, of the people who were his shortlist for a Supreme Court justice. Nobody had ever done that before. You can speculate about presidents' shortlists, uh, but nobody had ever said, I promise I will pick judges from this list. And the list I think was written by Leonard Leo. Donald Trump doesn't know anything about judges. Um, and so that was sort of his promise to the base that to the conservative base that he would appoint conservative judges, meaning Leonard Leo handpicked these guys. I, the, the suspicion theory, it's kind of more than a suspicion um, among liberal attorneys is that is that the, the Federalist Society is trying to smooth out the wrinkles in the judiciary. Usually when you appoint, usually when judges are appointed, you know, they're, they're idiosyncratic. They have certain things that they're liberal on. They have certain things they're conservative on. They have certain things where they have just wacky theories. Uh, and that's normal because people have diverse opinions. It certainly seems like a goal of the um, Federalist Society is to stamp out that kind of unpredictability and to make sure that people are really just down the line conservatives. Um, I don't know to what extent that's been successful. Neil Gorsuch has had some interesting moments of independence. I sound like a Gorsuch man, which I'm not, but like it, he had a big opinion on Indian law that was really good, that really matters for Native people in this country. I don't think the Federalist Society thought to, to vet on that, um, but, but that's, you know, that's interesting. Uh, but I think they really are, I, I say I think, that there is really a sense among the people I know, the people I talk to, that the Federalist Society is making sure that the federal judicial appointments 
are going to toe the Republican Party line in terms of reproductive rights, in terms of cutting back protections against racial discrimination, in terms of protecting companies against what they see as excessive lawsuits from individuals, so cutting back protections on employment law, um, basically narrowing the scope of protections that a lot of liberal attorneys really care about. Do you hear James? Is that your cat? Yeah. I just texted to uh, have the door open so that he stops doing that. <laughs> um, sorry about that. They won't hear it's it. Uh, but I know that like sometimes the audience hears the cats. Um, okay. I think that's settled. Um, interesting. So I'm going to put a link to the Federalist Society as well. Um, I had no idea that organization even existed. It makes sense. Um I don't know all of the the details of how all of this works. Um, I obviously there's always an angle to why somebody's recommended for the bench, right? Um, sure. The one of the most recent interesting things to come down from the Supreme Court was that um, after Amy took the bench. They basically stuck it to New York City. Did you read about that? Where um, they're basically like they put health causes second to religious rights. So um, yeah. there was uh, a sect of people in Brooklyn who were gathering enormous amounts of people. Uh, there was a picture somebody posted of just like this almost like an arena of people uh at church or something like that. And, um, you know, and, and they don't have to um, sort of register that they were in a large group of people or anything like that. Um, and so I thought that was interesting that you, you don't know where somebody's been, how many people they've been with, if they're positive or negative for coronavirus, uh, because the health care apparently comes second to religious practice <laughs> now so I, so I didn't read that court case um and two things I don't know about is I, I don't know the particular New York provision it was challenging so I can't I can't comment on that and I can't um and I don't know a lot about um the public health law of quarantines and stuff because there's a whole interesting area of law about what the government can do during an epidemic um I can tell you, I've actually followed pretty closely previous litigation because there was a big case in New Mexico um, about religious, it was a sort of religious freedom-based and free speech-based challenge to anti-discrimination law. Um, it was one of the wedding cases. There was that series of, you know, there, there was the Colorado cake baker and there's the New Mexico photographer and there were there were all these wedding vendors who, who said they didn't want to work with gay couples. Um, so I did follow it really closely uh, in New Mexico. I know that case really well. And it's a huge problem with um, religious conscience exemptions uh, is that if you interpret them really broadly, they threaten to eat the entire rest of the law, right? You could in theory have, nobody's going to do this, but you could in theory have a law saying, my religion requires me to engage in random human sacrifice. 
And therefore, I'm going to sacrifice people who I meet in the park sometimes, and you can't stop me because it's my religion. Now, that's the edge case. Nobody is going to agree to that. But there really are cases where um, people say, I have a religious exemption, and so, or I have a religious belief, and therefore, I should be exempt from public health restrictions. I have a religious objection, and therefore, I should be exempt from requirements that I provide birth control. I have a religious uh a religious disagreement and therefore I should be exempt from anti-discrimination law. Um, th- there is not an easy answer in those cases. I know where I fall, uh, but. So let's say you break from criminal defense for a little bit, you decided you wanted to argue against a church, not wanting to provide any kind of coverage. How would you go about defending women's rights in that regard? So for a long time, the operative rule for, for religious freedom came from a, a case which was, I'm going to get this wrong, but it was the city of Hialeah versus a, um, the church of the Lukumi Babalu Aye, I think is how you say it. Um, uh, it, it was a, a, the city of Hialeah was um, trying to crack down on a, a, a Santeria church in, in, uh, in Hialeah. Um, oh no, I'm, I'm, well, really it was an earlier case as employment division versus Smith is the case that sets out the rule. And then Lukumi Babaluai is the case that says, no, you actually can't do this. Uh, If you take the two cases together, they're two U.S. Supreme Court cases, several years apart. And uh, what they tell you is you're not allowed to target religion. So you can have laws that say, you know, all businesses must abide by these, um, uh, these restrictions in terms of the number of people you can have in the building, all businesses must, you know, follow the fire code. Um, all businesses must follow anti-discrimination law. You cannot have a law that says you can't sacrifice chickens for religious purposes, right? Like that, that is actually targeting a church. Um, so you can't do that. So something that I, again, I have not read the New York opinion, but one of the things that I have heard at just kind of bubbling up as a problem in some um, in some of the pandemic restrictions is that like Walmart is open, but churches are not. That's a talking point from uh, conservatives. And it's potentially problem, uh, problematic for the laws, because if you're allowed to be together in a Walmart, why aren't you allowed to be together in a church? It feels like you're targeting churches. Um the Sotomayor dissent in the case you're talking about, I think it's the same case, um, actually says, you know, th- th- there are reasons for this and we shouldn't second guess the public health people who say this is different. But um, but one of the things you would want to do if you were trying to have uh, restrictions that would protect, um, if you were trying to have rules that would protect what are we talking about? Insurance, a right to have your insurance cover uh, birth control or abortion? I guess birth control is probably the most realistic one. Yeah, it doesn't seem like we're going to get a whole lot of uh, abortion coverage through insurance um, through as, as a requirement. Um, so I don't know at this point, because the problem is there are there are state and federal laws um, that are that take the form of, they're usually called like religious freedom protection laws or religious freedom restoration acts um, that sort of require 
states and the federal government to prioritize religious objections that, that say if you have a religious objection, you can opt out. Um, I'm not sure at this point that all of my work on this was before Hobby Lobby was decided. Um, I don't know really what the best way of doing it would be. One way to do this would have the would be to have the government provide the insurance itself, and just decide we're going to cover uh, we're going to cover birth control. Hell, we're going to cover abortion. Um, th that's a fight though, because you you have to you have to get people on board with comprehensive government provided insurance, and that seems real likely right now, doesn't it? If you, I, I actually can't really think of a, there are people working on this kind of litigation strategy. I don't really know how you would approach, um, I don't really know how you would approach making sure that everybody got birth control coverage without that kind of thing, without having the government directly provide it because um, my understanding is there have been successful challenges to the Obamacare birth control mandate and religious employers right now are not required to provide it. This is not my area of expertise, though, at this point. You're going to make me I, I'm going to like go after this and read up on the Little Sisters of the Poor case and then call you back and go, I got this completely wrong. Let me yeah. tell you my new theory. Well, this is sort of why I'm doing these podcasts at this point, because um, I find them as a mechanism to to kind of start research on a topic and then what happens is I'll have I'll follow up on this with another episode where I'll probably end up talking with um, somebody who's maybe represented Planned Parenthood or something um, but yeah that you're the first lawyer I've had on here um, and wow, so it's I'm a lawyers starting are like point a dime a dozen. You're gonna, like, I know lousy with lawyers <laughs> um, do you want a constitution constitution question or constitution? Yeah, it's a big constitution. Point? What do you? I, I um, admit I was a little nervous when you said you wanted to talk about the constitution. I do, but I, I, I have a hard time figuring out where to start because it's it's such a strange document. Um, one thing I had trouble finding articles on is this thing in the it's it's this rule in the constitution that troops can't be boarded up in homes. When not yeah, in times amendment. of war. Oh, you know what you you know the Constitution better than I do. I know the first <laughs> ten amendments really well. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the Third Amendment. Let's go to the Third Amendment. Well, yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah. I, I I just can't figure out why people aren't writing about. Like, I feel like every amendment should be extensively written about, and that one, that was hard to find information on. I had kind of a lighthearted conversation with some friends not that long ago about what's your favorite amendment. And we all agreed the third amendment is kind of like the hipster amendment. Like it's gonna, it's gonna come in at some point. And then we'll all be talking about how we liked it before it was cool. Uh, I mean, the third amendment is neat. It's, it's sort of a great example of the, um, the sort of thing that mattered at the time it was written, like clearly this was a concern on par with the other concerns in the first 10 amendments, and, or I should say really the first eight substantive amendments. Uh, and it never comes up anymore. We just accept this as a given. Nobody, nobody's being asked, asked to quarter troops. Um, so maybe it was successful. I don't know. But uh, but it's a, it's a good example of like, the, the different stuff here. I was like, a thing I loved is in... 
I guess it's 2010. So this would have happened in 2011 when the, or maybe I'm getting the year wrong. There was a year when the, when Republicans sort of swept into power in Congress and they decided they were going to open Congress off with a bang by reading the constitution out loud. And which like is cool, fine, whatever. But the funny part is there was immediate jockeying for like the good parts of the constitution because so much of it is like not actually that cool. Um, if, if you go back, I mean, the bill, people love the bill of rights. Um, but if you go back to just let's let's find some weird parts of the Constitution here. I'm yeah, I'd, I'd be I'm interested in um, what parts of it wouldn't have been wouldn't have interested them. Um, um so here's all right. Let's let's look at the scope of legislative power. That sounds pretty good. So I'm in uh, Article One, Section Eight, which is actually an important part of the Constitution. It's the scope of Congress's power. All right, what can, I'm, I'm gonna scroll through section eight. So Congress can lay and collect taxes. That's a big deal. Uh, all of these clauses are like really matter to certain areas of litigation to establish uniform rules of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcy. Okay. To coin money and fix the standard of weights and measures to punish counterfeiting, to establish post offices and post roads, to promote the progress of science and useful arts. Oh, this is copywriting. Okay. To constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. Okay, so they can make federal courts. To define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas. I'm just going to scroll down a little bit past sure. like defining a navy and stuff. Okay. <laughs> Oh, that's the uh, militia one, 15. There's a bunch of stuff about yeah. a militia. So, so there's a bunch of stuff about the armed forces. Okay. That's the one that's been in the news recently because all these militias, like in Michigan, uh, coming up and they're like, well, we have this constitutional right, blah, 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 blah. But really what I, what the, I think some interpreter on one of the news organizations ended up saying was, well, the National Guard is actually the the, the modern age, what they're talking about. Yeah, all the militia stuff is kind of weird because there wasn't supposed to be a standing army. You have to read the Constitution with the knowledge that there wasn't supposed to be a standing army and there weren't supposed to be political parties. So things look very different now than, than they used to. I saw a joke online that I loved um, where like someone's talking to, to Thomas Jefferson and they say, and Thomas Jefferson says, okay, so every state gets two senators no matter what. And the person says, okay, but what if California has like 40 million people? And Thomas Jefferson says, where has how many what now? Like, you know, California didn't exist. There weren't 40 million people anywhere. This is like inconceivable uh, from an originalist perspective, which is kind of a, I mean, it, Yeah, I, it, it, there are a lot of things now. A problem with originalism is there are a lot of things now that would have been completely inconceivable to um, to the people who wrote the original Constitution. Can you hear construction? I do. Okay, but okay. back to the boring parts yeah. of the Constitution. Yes, I'm in Article One. I'm interested section. in the boring parts. 
imagine you are a brand new Republican con uh, Republican congressman and you are here and you are ready to read the constitution because you are, it was in the Tea Party era when they carried little constitutions around, which I thought was adorable. And they say, okay, you, you, you're going to read article, part of article one, section 10. You're like, good. What's my part. And then you get up there and you have to read no state shall without the consent of Congress lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports, except what must be absolute, except what may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws. It, you know, it, it's not like, it's not like a ringing statement of what our country is about it's important states can't impose the, their own tariffs but um but you know they wanted to be up there reading like the second amendment or something they didn't want to be reading this and then, and there was also a big controversy about whether to actually read the parts that involved slavery or whether they'd been repealed what did they end up doing did they end up doing the whole thing i think they ended up I don't remember if they they read the um the parts about slavery or not but they had John Lewis dear departed John Lewis um read the 13th amendment which abolished slavery which I guess was supposed to make it all okay I don't know he read the 13th amendment and we all cheered I, I it's so funny that like you know the this was the wait, you said this was the Tea Party era so that would this have been the, the tea 2000s party era. So this would have been either 20 uh yeah, so no, so this would have been the, the inauguration oh, in 2011, almost exactly 10 years ago. Yeah. No, 20, yeah, 10 years ago. That's funny. How inconvenient the some parts of the Constitution became. It, it can be a very <laughs> inconvenient document. <laughs> um, all right. I think we got a good hour in. Uh, I don't know how, I, I don't want to take too much of your time or if you have a heart out. Um no, I'm good. Okay. I'm trying to avoid talking when they're doing that, but because um, what I can do is while you're talking, lower the sound of the construction. Got it. I love doing this, by the way. So feel free to, you know, if there's something you decide you wanted to add, call me back anytime. Definitely. And um, also, um, I'm going to be probably just as a matter of my priorities, this podcast. So to kind of keep it lively and timely, I'm probably going to be following a lot of Supreme Court stuff, just so you know. <laughs> and um, yeah, if there's anything, uh, I'll definitely reach out. I mean, the problem is these lawyers over-specialize, right? So like, I can give I you vague stuff about the about like what's happening in in there in the U.S. Supreme Court. If you want to know, like. Stuff about the definition of assault in New Mexico, like I'm your girl. <laughs> it... Well, you know, it's um, it's one of those things where like my favorite episodes are the ones where we're finding out stuff live. So we were just both engaging in kind of research at the same time. Um, or if something transpires in the news while I'm recording, I really love it when that happens. Like I think. Um, I forget what it, I think Biden won while I was recording, like officially oh, recording. Cool. That was kind of cool. Um, yeah, I love it when that stuff happens. Fascinating. Oh, I have to pull up fascinating facts about the Constitution. Um, 
If you like the Constitution, there are a couple of really good I do. Books. I'm obsessed, but I don't know how to have the conversation because, like, you're beating me. <laughs> you're, like, yeah. winning here, uh, and, you're, and you're supposed to. Like, this is why you're here. Um, you know what's really worth reading if you're interested in the Constitution? There are great books by Akhil Amar, Akhil Reed Amar. Um, his books about the Constitution are terrific, just really historically literate and fun. Okay, I'll put I'll put I'll pull that up on Amazon and check that out. And I'll also put a, a link in the description so other people can check that out. Um, do you think we need to have a constitutional convention? No, I think it's a terrible idea. Why? Because I think um, so. So, like, obviously, I want the changes in the Constitution that I want, and so like, it's sort of cool to say, "Oh, well, we should all get together and make the changes that I want," but. I think honestly, if you put a lot of the constitution to a vote, um, a lot of parts of it would not be popular. And I am really concerned about what we would come up with if we had a constitutional convention. Now, I think we could wind up repealing all sorts of stuff. I don't think the first amendment would actually be that popular if you came down to it. I think most people's instincts are much more limited than what the first amendment has been interpreted to allow. Um, I think most of the protections for criminal defendants would be right out the window. I mean, people are polite when they're around me, but just based on what I sort of hear from people who don't know what I do uh, or from just people on the internet, a lot of people really just think if you're accused of a crime, you did it and we should lock you up and never let you out. Yeah, simple, simply being accused is enough. But also I find that there's a lot of... Um... There's a lot of resentment for anybody who did a crime, whether big or small. Like if you've ever done time at all, okay. like, like you, you're doing time for the rest of your life, no matter what. There is a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and. Oh, God, I shouldn't get into this. stuff. People have a mental hierarchy of crimes that's really clear. And so, you know, I'll hang out with people and I'll talk about what I do and a thing that tends to come up is people say oh you also defend child molesters like that's the, the they're fine with like murder but if you but cr sex crimes in particular and crimes against children in particular people have a particular revulsion which is understandable I think but there is a sense that like I shouldn't I shouldn't even want to take cases where that's at issue that's that's beyond the pale because again those people necessarily did it is the is the idea and if if they did do it i think for a lot of people the other stuff does not matter like the i think you really so if you had a if if you had a client that obviously raped somebody and then murdered them the murder would be second to the first first thing that I think for a lot of people, that's their instinct. But I think also there's a real, I think if you put it to a vote, should people who, if, if, you, if there's probable cause that somebody molested a child, should that, per, should that person get all the protections of the constitution? I think you'd get a majority in the country saying no. So I, I fear for, um, I would be very fearful of a broad rethinking of the Constitution um, at a constitutional convention. I think it could go to some very weird places. What rationale would you give to somebody who, 
and and I see this in comments on on the news all the time. Like if you go to YouTube and watch the news, the comments on these types of stories is hang them, burn them, you know, just absolute hatred, no tolerance, blah 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 blah. And what rationale would you give to somebody like that for why we should kind of just go through this legal process knowing that we have all this evidence that oh like hypothetically if they are guilty we know they're guilty there's a tape or something like that why still go through this process why still presume so it's it's a deep question um and the there are a lot of societies that don't use the kind of system we use we use what's called an adversarial system of justice where you have it's a little complicated in the criminal sphere um but the idea is basically you have the prosecutor fighting to lock someone up and you have the defense attorney fighting to not lock someone up and you have the finder of fact, usually the jury, sometimes a judge, who is supposed to listen to the two sides fighting and come to a conclusion. It's a little more complicated than that because the prosecutor is actually supposed to be a minister of justice who is supposed to, for example, dismiss cases that um, the prosecutor believes are are not um where the prosecutor believes the person is innocent or where there's some other problem. Um, Not all societies use an adversarial system of justice. It's completely reasonable to say this is a bad system. This is not the best way to get at the truth. This is not the best way to heal victims. This is not the best way to rehabilitate people. Um, It's not the system you would use like in your house or your family, right? If you were were trying to design a system to... make society get along, you wouldn't choose one where everybody fights and then some neutral third party decides who's right and then you lock somebody up. You, you would choose some sort of restorative justice system probably. If you, were de- if you had a small community or a big family that you were designing a system for, you would design something that was designed to promote people saying, I did it and I'm sorry and how can I make it up to you? And then you try to like not have the person do bad things anymore. Um, Given that we have an adversarial system of justice, uh, it is important to make sure that people are protected uh, from the excesses of the state. Um, the government has, and I, I say the government, but it's really governments. It's the federal government and every state government and municipal governments and the highway patrol and uh, they have a monopoly on it. What is the phrase they use in political science? There's a monopoly on the use of legitimate force. Um, and it's very easy for them to spill into, um, for them to spill into excess, for them to start abusing that power. Um, I don't think all cops are bastards. That's the thing people say online, right? I, I think there are a lot of police officers who are there because they are trying to like make society a safe place. It is also a job that attracts people who like to control other people. Um, and it is impossible to, well, I don't know that it's impossible, but at the moment we have not managed to keep people who abuse their power out of um police departments and out of, frankly, prosecutors' offices. Um, if you're hiring for a job where you're, where part of the goal of the job is to lock people up, you get some people whose goal is to lock people up rather than to do justice. And so you have to have some protections to keep 
the state from totally going overboard. I mean, if you want to see what it looks like when the state goes overboard, I'm, to refer people to another podcast, the second season of In the Dark, um, follow, I don't know if you've, you've listened to it. Um, it follows the story of a man named Curtis Flowers, who, well, I won't spoil where he is now, but who was tried six times for a murder he probably didn't commit. Um, the normal system does not have six trials. And you only get six trials if they mess the trials up, right? They're, they're trials that are, that are barred by pretty serious prosecutorial misconduct. A normal system doesn't have that. Um, I shouldn't say a normal system, a good system doesn't have that. And so the Fourth Amendment right to protection against illegal search and seizure is what protects police from just going into your house. Uh, what protects you from having police just go into your house and go through all your stuff and saying, well, if you're innocent, you don't have anything to worry about. Um, the, the Fifth Amendment rights to, to due process against self-incrimination those protect you from from being browbeaten by in theory they protect because none of this works perfectly in they protect you from being browbeaten by police into saying that you did something you didn't do which is a huge problem false confessions actually do happen it's counterintuitive but um if you read cases about um wrongful convictions a thing that happens is that people confess because they just want to get out of the police station um, people are used to submitting to authority. And so you want to have some protections against that. Um, and, and the ones we have are, frankly, inadequate. Um, the, the Sixth Amendment right to trial, right to speedy trial, right to an attorney. You know, even with those protections in place, I'm litigating a case right now where my client was in prison for, not, not in prison, sorry, my client was imprisoned. My client was in jail for almost six years awaiting trial. It's six years of his life. Even if he'd been acquitted, he would have served those six years. That's not supposed to happen. And so the protections that we have in the big criminal justice amendments are the fourth, fifth, and sixth amendments to the Constitution. The protections that we have in there are important for criminal defendants across the board, partly for because sometimes people are innocent, partly because sometimes people are guilty, but it's not as bad as it seems, which really doesn't apply in the, the context of really horrible crimes. Um, you know, I don't really know where I'm going with this. Um, I see the excesses of police and prosecutors, and I think most people don't realize what it's like to be on the wrong side of that. You really do need most of us get through our days, I think, let's say most of us, but the, the particular us, I think many, many people in the US, including me, go through our days mostly without interaction with like police. We may break a small law or we may not, right? Like most of your listeners, if you think about the last week, have I jaywalked? Have I smoked marijuana? Have I committed a traffic violation? Did I trespass maybe? Um, actually, probably a lot of people didn't because we're all at home. But um, 
you know, some people really got on a subway without paying the, the fare. If you think of like the little things that you could do that are breaking the law, most of the time you don't get caught. Most of the time you don't have criminal justice involvement and everything's just kind of okay. When the law comes slamming down on you, suddenly it feels very different and it's good to have something protecting you, even if the something winds up not being very much, much of the time. Hi, everybody. Eric here. So during this part of the podcast, the construction next door got so loud that I became really distracted. And in attempting to ask Caitlin some questions, I basically rambled on for about five minutes. And ultimately, what I ended up asking her was whether or not prosecutors could continue a case even after the person who initially pressed the charges dropped those charges. And uh, here is her answer. And we'll continue the podcast as uh, normally on from there. Thanks, everybody. Sorry for the construction. I know it's really, really annoying. So Okay, so a... Um... So in, I think every state, someone should tell you if there's an exception, um, you have the civil system where one citizen can sue or one person can sue another person um, for a violation of the law, for, for hurting them. Um, and then you have the criminal system where the state or the city or the federal government is always the prosecutor. Um, and so we talk about... I, I feel like this is less common than it used to be, but we talk about a person pressing charges in, um, in, in a criminal case. The person is still, the person who, who we say is, is pressing the charges is, is the complaining witness. The person isn't actually initiating the prosecution and the, the state, the prosecutor does not represent that person. Usually what that just means is the person is willing to testify in court and would like the prosecutor to go forward. There's been a, a movement, I can't really describe when it happened, but it was, um, this concept was around when I was in law school. So, you know, the 2010s. Uh, and I think it was around before that. Uh, there's, there's been a, a concept called victimless prosecution, where particularly in domestic violence cases, they try to take the onus off of the, the victim uh, and say, well, the state is going to prosecute no matter what. This, it's not up to you. You, you know, you're, you're a witness to the crime, but, but the whole idea of having the state prosecute is that crime is an offense against the state, not just against a person. And therefore, um, we're going to prosecute no matter what. Um, so the, when I was in law school, the district attorney's office in Queens was known for doing this. That, um, and to do it well requires training the police to do it well, because you basically have to investigate um, a domestic assault case or a domestic violence case, like a murder. You have to take photos. You have to assume, you have to interview the neighbors. You have to assume that there isn't going to be an eyewitness at trial. Um, in practice, in a lot of places, um, in a domestic case or in a just any low-level criminal case, if the, the victim doesn't want to be involved, the prosecutor will often drop the case, but they don't have mm -hmm. to. Would they drop it just because there's no way to get evidence if the other person isn't willing to cooperate? Sure. Um, yeah. Which is why doing victimless prosecutions requires retraining the police. Um, I used to do, uh, when I was a misdemeanor public defender, 
I had a lot of misdemeanor domestic violence cases. There, there are a lot of misdemeanor domestic violence cases where nobody gets badly hurt. Um, and it was super common that the, um, the evidence was just, you know, the police got called to a house. There was a person there who said, uh, she hit me. And the police arrested the person who, um, the police arrest whoever the she is and take her in. Um, I'm using she here deliberately. That's usually a man, but not always. Um, and then when you get to trial, the only evidence that would be admissible would be the statement, would be the person who said she hit me, it would be if that person came in and testified because the police can't testify that she said that. That's here saying it's a violation of the confrontation clause. Um, and usually there's no physical evidence. Um, in a more serious assault case, you have like medical records and stuff, but not in this. Um, and so they let it go if the person doesn't want to testify. That's interesting that the police can't say what was told to them, whether it was or wasn't. Um, I would have thought that because you always hear that it's their word against yours. You hear that in movies, you hear that on TV. Um, so I didn't even know that. That's interesting. Well, it's. So it's complicated, right? And lawyers get this stuff wrong all the time, actually. But yeah, there are rules against hearsay. And um, the Constitution actually provides you, it's going to be in the Sixth Amendment, um, it provides you with a right to, I have the Constitution, let me pull up the exact language rather than paraphrasing so that I don't get this wrong. I know what it says. I just want to make sure I say it right. Okay. Sixth Amendment. Um, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to skip ahead to be confronted with the witnesses against him. So that's been interpreted to mean that you get, if somebody says you did something in a criminal case, you get to cross-examine that person. So you cannot have the police come in. It's complicated. There are situations where you can, but in general, you can't have the police come in and say, well, somebody told me that he did this because then you can't cross-examine the person making the accusation. Um, and, and also hearsay. Uh, there, there are rules of evidence that say you can't bring in hearsay, which is evidence of an out-of-court statement uh, to prove the truth of the matter asserted. People spend their lives fighting over this. Have you ever had a case where uh, you thought you had you had it and then just kind of out of left field you were schooled on something that you hadn't really prepared for the the trials that i did were not like legally exciting trials they were just meaningful for the people who who were involved and so i had cases that i lost where i thought i was going to win um but it wasn't like something happened and i went oh no i didn't think of that case that somebody just brought up, which is how it would happen on Law and Order. Just, I thought I had a good case and it went to the jury and the jury convicted. Um, I have not had a case like that on appeal either. I have not had something where um, I wrote my brief and the state came back. This is a lawyer's nightmare, by the way. You stay up at night thinking about this. And there's always a moment when I open opposing counsel's brief. I get an email that says opposing counsel has filed that, his or her brief. And I, there's always a moment when I'm downloading it where I go, 
what if they found the thing that I didn't find? What if there's a case that just says, Caitlin, you lose? Like, what if they found it? What if, what if I'm completely wrong? Um, and it hasn't happened yet. Uh, it could happen. Uh, but that's, I do a lot of research to try to make sure that it, it doesn't happen. It's been a couple of years now. And so far, I have never just had something come out of left field that I wasn't anticipating. A, a good sign when you read your um, opponent's brief is if you know everything in there. If you go, okay, now they're making the argument that I knew they were going to make. Sometimes oh, you don't. Yeah. Sometimes they say something else because they're like crazy pants. Sometimes they say something that makes no sense. And then that's actually hard to respond to because you have to explain to the court in your reply why what they said doesn't matter or is nonsensical or something like that. Um, but but a good sign for litigation is if you're if you anticipate what they're going to say and then they make the arguments that you were anticipating. Okay, I think we got a good we got a good podcast in. Um, it's almost an hour and a half. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a long time. Edit um, me down. People don't want to listen to an hour and a half of me rambling. Uh, my longest was two hours. Okay. Um, but I also did like an hour and a half with my sister and we were just bitching about our parents the whole time. So, See, you know, everything goes. That. <laughs> that's the only one I got a thumbs down on. Really? I, yeah. I don't know why. So like, cause you said earlier that, um, people, uh, people are going to, I'm going to draw ire from some people cause of this, some of the stuff we were talking about. But, um, honestly, like I get no responses mostly to political stuff, um, and I get respond when I get personal though, people just hate it. <laughs> you know what we should talk about though? You should have me back and we should talk about um we should talk about kooky legal theories on the internet. Okay, yes. People think um and you sent me something about this ages ago, sort of my introduction to it. Um people think there's like magic in the legal system, people buy into sovereign citizen theories. Um I, I Nothing I say is going to stop them, but it's all really interesting. You ever see those videos on YouTube of like sovereign citizens getting owned by police? <laughs> it's really now. This is just going to drag out your podcast. You don't need to include this at all. I had the joy of having of being in court and having to explain to a judge what a sovereign citizen was. Because the, uh, there was a guy in court, not my client, um, but I was just like hanging out in court because it's sometimes judges like to have a public defender around and I was, you know, I was between st things. Um, and this is misdemeanor court on a Friday. So there was not very much going on. It was like people dealing with their traffic tickets. Um, and some guy came in who was absolutely committed to this bit that he'd clearly learned on the internet where he was like, I wasn't driving, I was traveling. And you could just hear the police officer rolling his eyes, like his really long suffering police officer. And the the judge was so confused and he was saying to the officer, was this man not driving? Was he not in the driver's seat? And I had to explain to the judge that this was this theory of like he, he was traveling, he was exercising his right to travel and therefore traffic laws didn't apply. And the judge just sort of looked at the guy and said, son, don't mess with me. Like he was really not having it. He was so confused. 
Okay, so we're gonna we have to do this episode. Uh, maybe on spring break we could do cookie, cookie legal theories on the internet. I'd be happy to. Awesome, um, or whenever it works out for you. I don't. I don't have rules here. Thank you, by the way. Thank you. It's fun. All right, that was my podcast with Caitlin Smith. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it, found it useful, found it illuminating and interesting. Uh, I always loved having conversations with her back when she was living in New York uh, because she always forced me to bring up my game as far as my personal way of having conversations. She got me to sort of think through my responses and um, I sort of always kind of went into debate mode whenever having conversations. And so um, that's one of the reasons I invited her on here is because I really loved that aspect, uh, that sort of conversational style, and I wanted to bring it to the podcast. Um, and so I finally have, and, uh, and I'm glad that uh, she's willing to come on down the road to do more episodes. And uh, because the podcast benefits, I benefit, and you benefit. And uh, I hope that our guest benefited as well. Um, anyway, I'll see you guys on the next episode. Thanks.